Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by the Centre of Consciousness and Contemplative Studies at Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, mate? Hey, James. Great to be here, as always. Yeah, so today our guest is Evan Thompson. Evan is a professor of philosophy at UBC and author of a number of very cool books, including Waking, Dreaming, Being, and Why I Am Not a Buddhist. His research on embodied cognition, the self, and consciousness has in many ways carved the path for these topics. He's also a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and it's basically brilliant to have him on today. Evan, how are you? Good, thanks for having me. So you talk a lot about something called Buddhist exceptionalism. And I wanted to start by asking why you think Buddhism gets an easier run, or why it might appeal intellectually to a greater degree than lots of other spiritual traditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so to quickly answer that, I would say that Buddhism has been very, very successful in modernizing itself. So Modernization is a phenomenon that we see across virtually every religious tradition, every so-called world religion, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., Islam. And Buddhism has been very successful at doing that, or certain forms of Buddhism have, have been successful at doing this in certain contexts where they downplay traditional metaphysical or ritual aspects of Buddhism and emphasize certain Buddhist ideas in a way that represents them as being especially rational and especially empirical according to scientific standards of, of rationality and empiricism. And so the way that that connects to Buddhist exceptionalism is the very widespread perception in the West that Buddhism at its core really fundamentally isn't a religion, it's a first-person science or an inner mind science or a philosophical path or a life therapy. And it's not a religion because it doesn't have the need for a belief in an immortal soul or creator God, and you don't have to accept anything supernatural to partake in Buddhism as a kind of inner meditative discipline. So that is a very modern rendition of certain aspects of Buddhism where a very clever mood was made, where Buddhist teachers made certain kinds of meditative practices more available to lay people while at the same time mounting this counter-argument against Christianity and European civilization saying, oh, well, Buddhism is actually really the superior scientific religion, again, because, you know, we don't have creator God and we don't believe in an immortal soul and we believe in the law of cause and effect. You know, religions always evolve and religions in the modern world especially have to figure out how they're going to deal with modernity. So I have no criticism of that. I use the term Buddhist exceptionalism, however, to indicate something that I do think is problematic, which is this, as I see it, distorted idea that Buddhism is somehow unique and special and different in a way that makes it fundamentally different from other religions. Given that, and given the fact they have modernized, why can't you say, well, okay, I'm not a traditional Buddhist, but I'm a Buddhist in the modern sense of the term. At what stage does that become problematic? I, I don't see any problem with that at all. The problem comes when either people are ignorant of the history and don't realize that this is a new form of Buddhism. Because part of what Buddhist exceptionalism and Buddhist modernism did 
and this is a quintessentially modern move, is it reconstructed Buddhism in modern terms and then projected it back to being the historical essence of the message of the Buddha. And we don't actually know anything about the Buddha as a historical figure. You know, the texts in which his teachings are presented are at several removes from him, and they were orally preserved before they came to be written down. So we know very, very little about the Buddha as a concrete historical figure. Arguably, we know less about the Buddha than we do say about Jesus. Modern Buddhists often position themselves as negating or denying traditional Buddhism. And the way that they do that is by projecting this modern construct back into the origins of Buddhism as a way of trying to do an end run around the evolving tradition of Buddhism historically in all these different cultures and countries, rather than seeing their own version as just another evolving variant. So I right. see that, I mean, that's a kind of false consciousness. It's presenting a misrepresentation. Ah, because in order to make the argument that you're saying that the modern Buddhists are making, they're kind of subtly saying, well, look, the core message of this thing is irreligious. Whereas you're saying, no, 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 that's a modern variation. And if you look at the history, we actually know very little about the Buddha, but it's unlikely he was presenting something that's totally satisfying from the perspective of a 21st century secular thinker. Oh, definitely. And moreover, the idea that what the Buddha as an imagined historical figure said as being the essence of Buddhism, that's in an essence a fundamentalist idea because you think that you're getting outside of the evolving tradition back to an essential origin instead of seeing the tradition and its evolution as actually the, you know, the lifeblood of, you know, whatever Buddhism or Buddhisms, to be plural about it, is going to be. And I mean, we could go more into, you know, some of the philosophical, specifically philosophical problems with that, which is that Buddhism as a conceptual system is organized around ideas, ideas having to do with liberation and salvation that are not scientific. It's not that they're anti-scientific, it's just that they operate in a different conceptual space in the way that art operates in a different conceptual space from science in terms of you know, the aesthetic norms, whatever they may be, that govern any given artistic practice. Those are not scientific in the sense that they're not established by science, they can't be validated by science. You can have a conversation with science between art and science that can be very interesting and rich, but it's a good conversation when you don't try to use science to justify art, you use the two practices to illuminate each other. So right. similarly in the case of you know, Buddhism, there are these core ethical soteriological ideas of liberation, awakening, existence as inherently suffering, an impulse to transcendence. These are not, you know, scientific ideas. They operate in the sphere of values and ethics. And so to think that somehow science would validate them and that therefore Buddhism would be the scientific religion is, that's just conceptually confused. Right. So that means even sort of modernist takes of Buddhism are going to bring in some of these religious points sort of inescapably, because they're still built around these soteriological ideas. I mean, then how does sort of modern Buddhism maybe interface with science, or maybe it shouldn't at all? I mean, I, one thing I hear you saying right now is that we shouldn't be using science in order to prove modern Buddhist ideas, but is there any way that they can relate? Is there any, yeah. in, your, in your vision, any way that they can be sort of successfully or... Right, yeah, no, that's a very good question. So there's many different kinds of conversation that could happen. So it's always about the particular participants in any given conversation. But I would say that, you know, if I was going to generalize, I would say that the overarching theme or rationale for the conversation would be something like the ethics of knowledge or the ethics of knowing. You know, science is based on, on certain underlying ideas of what knowledge is 
and what you know kind of knowledge we should be seeking to acquire and how we should be thinking of it in terms of you know the transformation of of the material world so that comes out of you know the whole enlightenment project and buddhism is also more in its philosophical intellectual tradition i'm talking about now very much concerned with and this comes out of the indian context especially with the the nature of knowledge or knowing as a kind of instrument or process for organizing our lives in the right way in in the right. world. So there can be, I think, a very interesting and important conversation between these different systems of knowing with the different, you know, values that are that are driving them. Because to put it this way, you know, knowledge or knowing is in some sense infinite. There's always more to be known. The idea that knowledge would come to an end is in a way in incoherent i would i would actually say but we're finite creatures so you know then the question becomes well what should we be striving to know and how should we be striving to embody it and there i think you know buddhism as an ethical system can actually have some very important things yeah. to say in relation to science it's so interesting you immediately go to ethics of knowledge when you know you would expect somebody when they're talking about even modernist takes on Buddhism and science, you think meditation, right. uh, you know, right. and, and <laughs> like what are brain states that have to do with the various practices and styles of trainings and the states and traits that right. are developed through those trainings? But you went straight to sort of an ethics of knowledge, which I find so fascinating. Is there something sort of precarious in this other area that is worth talking about here? Well, I see the scientific study of meditation as a complicated thing. So in and of itself, studying the effects of meditative practices on behavior and on states and traits, I don't see anything inherently problematic about that, depending on how the studies are done. Right, of course. The problematic issue that arises is that this is often done in a decontextualized way. So these kinds of practices are embedded within a larger ethical worldview and in a larger social community. And if you just right. abstract an individual out yeah. Yeah. and think that the nature of those practices and the effects that they have is revealed by seeing what happens in the brain measured with fMRI or you know EEG, you may find significant effects but interpreting what they are when you've bracketed out this larger context becomes very problematic. So, you know, the analogy that I use in my book, Why I'm Not a Buddhist, is that if you're studying, say, expert performance or expert experience in the case of, say, like Yo-Yo Ma and his cello playing, well, of course, because he's devoted his life to practice and performance and training, you're going to expect to see, you know, very different activities in his brain in networks involving, you know, musical cognition and, and, you know, motor enactment than you would from, let's say, or average or ordinary cello player or someone who can't play the cello at all. And those are real robust effects. And, you know, that can be interesting. But if you think that doing that informs you as to what the true nature of music is or cello playing or Bach, which you can't understand unless you understand, you know, Lutheranism and you know conventions of baroque music i mean so i see meditation as like that meditation is is a practice right. it's a skill but its meaning is not to be found inside the brain despite whatever you know very robust effects you might find in the brain on the part of say expert meditators her name escapes me but there was a chess player paul garth i think is her last name and she was she's the best ever female chess player and they put her in a scan to see what would happen to her brain. 
when different stimulus was presented. So they put the photo of her family and the brain recognition patterns light up. And then they show her pictures of her friends, same deal. And then they show her common chest structures and the same part of her brain lights up, which is unusual because that's usually pattern recognition for faces, etc. Okay, we don't read in any epistemology or any like, you understand the true nature of reality from that. But meditation itself, especially when you're just on the breath and it's nothing fancier than that, feels minimalistic. And the lack of content makes you feel somehow like superficially, like you're really getting to the core thing. Playing the piano feels superficial comparatively. Playing chess, it's like, well, these are constructed games. Whereas just the nature of meditation, breath, body calming down, I think just has this aesthetic of you're getting something really spiritually significant. So I'm so interested to hear you say, well, look, people's brains change all the time when they do stuff that's... Right, right. Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of interesting things you said. So I would say that for people who are adept piano players, cello players, chess players, a lot of the same absorption that one might experience in, say, awareness of breath meditation is likely to happen in those practices as well, number one. Number two, the idea that those practices are constructed and meditation isn't constructed, I think is an illusion. I think meditation is a scripted practice. It's ritual in the sense that you put yourself into a somatic and mental set that is about, it's a kind of, you know, as if structure. You're putting yourself into a certain context of practice in order to enact something that, you know, meets with an instruction you've been given or has to do with the larger framework of, say, you know, awakening. And if you go on a meditation retreat and it's a social practice, you know, there's all sorts of scripted and constructed things. So the idea that it's minimalist, it is minimalist in one sense, in that you're sitting, you're not moving, you're paying attention to your breath, you're slowing things down metabolically. That has, you know, calming effects, you know, for, for some people, it can be anxiety inducing for others, but, you know, depending on who they are, but, you know, it has down regulation effects, you could say. So it's, you could say it's minimalist in that way, but it's within a context, a larger context that is, that is very constructed. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we human beings are social cultural animals and we construct context for ourselves in order to create certain kinds of, you know, psychosomatic states. But this idea that when you're meditating, you're kind of turning off construction and you're tapping into something that's deeply there and unconstructed, there is that, you could say, rhetoric, and, but it's in contradiction with what's actually happening. I was hoping we'd get a chance to talk about this because I've just read a recent paper of yours on concepts and having non-conceptual experience. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And it just always hits my ear funny to think that we could have a non-conceptual experience. Partially that's because of the bias of the sort of cognitive science frameworks I'm used to working in, where we think of perception, all perception now is somewhat constructed. That's just what perception is. It's a constructed phenomenon. So I don't know what it would mean to have a non-constructed phenomenon. So could you just say a little bit more about this sort of debate about the idea that we can have sort of a non-conceptual experience versus a conceptual experience? Yeah. So this is a huge topic. Um, yeah, in, <laughs> we don't have to go too far, but right. I've been so hoping it, we can talk about it I mean, it's a huge a topic in Buddhist philosophy. It's a huge yeah. topic across Indian philosophy. It's a huge topic in philosophy of mind today and cognitive science. But the basic, you could say an underlying premise, you could say it's an intellectual premise, a conceptual premise, 
of, of Buddhist thinking is that the mind engages in constructive activities. And now this, this is going to depend on who you ask philosophically or in the tradition. But let's say that there is a kind of mode of awareness or experience that is non-conceptual and non-dual. So that means it's a mode of awareness or experience that's not bifurcated into a sense of subject over against object, subject versus object. And it's also not conceptual in the sense that you're not applying constructed categories to the experience. This is actually quite interesting and significant in the, in the neuroscience and meditation of pain experience. Because pain, right. in the way we right. use the w English word pain, is this complex constructed thing. It has a sensory aspect. Yeah. It has an affective yeah. aspect. It has a cognitive yeah. aspect. Yeah. And certain forms of meditation that are not so much concentration practices but, but more kind of open awareness practices seem to have very powerful effects both behaviorally and neurally on the perception and experience of pain, the idea basically being that there's a kind of open, you might say non-grasping that is neither desiring nor being aversively oriented to, a kind of non-grasping openness towards the pain stimulus without then superimposing onto it all the affective cognitive elaboration. And that that goes along with actually a very accurate ability to discriminate the sensory intensity of pain with a reduced report of unpleasantness and a reduction in brain areas that are associated with kind of affective appraisal. So there's a case where with, with cognitive science and with certain meditative traditions, and I think this is a good example of the science-Buddhism interface in the lab, if you will. Right, There's an right. attempt to kind of parse out these different aspects of pain right. in a way that could actually then have very beneficial non-pharmacological therapy methods for, for dealing with pain, especially chronic pain. So that, I think, is, is really good. But notice there that that research is strong because there's already a very well-developed theory of pain in cognitive right. neuroscience and neurophysiology. Right. So it's not like we're just going and measuring, you know, meditators and scanners in this kind of way that doesn't involve a larger theory about, you know, what the mind is and how the mind works. We're actually taking a very developed area of scientific research and we're saying, oh, look, these practices actually seem to affect the experience of pain. So, so that's a case where I think there's some, there is some very good research, very important research. I can't work out, basically, what you're committed to when it comes to the funky stuff, the enlightenment. Yeah, this is a good topic. <laughs> like, my understanding of enlightenment, and there's obviously a bunch of forms, but I think basically what people mean is you realize, because it's kind of the epistemology thing again, some fundamental truth about yourself, nature, bang, permanent change of experience. I can't work out whether you're committed to call, call bullshit on that epistemology point, or whether you can kind of run with it. And I just wanted you to clear it up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. So I would, I would say that I have no doubt that people experience profound transformative experiences that they may then use the word awakening or enlightenment to describe and that that involves a transformation in certain modes of understanding, and you could say certain modes of knowing, though we, we 
we would need to say more about that. It certainly always goes along with an epistemic feeling of knowing, a kind of like noetic feeling of insight. The, the point that, I'm, that I argue in my book about that is that the notion of, of an enlightenment or awakening experience is concept dependent in the sense that mm. the idea of love is concept dependent. So there isn't one thing called love. There's romantic love, there's sibling love, there's love for a pet, there's you know divine love, there's medieval courtly love. I mean, what love is as a human experience always depends on how you conceptualize it. it the conceptualization right. makes it be the kind of experience that warrants being called love in one or another mode. So I would say the same about awakening or enlightenment. There are many, many transformative experiences that people have. And when they get labeled as awakening or enlightenment, they're getting conceptualized. And that conceptualization is part of what makes the experience have a certain kind of significance. So now if you ask me, okay, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go along with all that. There's no like such thing as, as an enlightenment or awakening experience outside of being conceptualized as such, what then do we say about the epistemic claims that people make? Well, that depends on the particular epistemic claim. So if someone, for example, were to say, I've had a profound transformative awakening in which I realized that there fundamentally is no self and that the nature of consciousness is pure awareness, pure luminosity, and that is the ground state of all being, that reality is, let's say, consciousness, then I would say there's been an unwarranted move from a description of an, ex a, an experiential realization that has transformed the person to metaphysical statements mm -hmm. about reality that don't logically follow and that epistemically are not warranted because you could put it this way, you know, being or consciousness is ultimately ungraspable. I mean, you can't trace out from within where its origin is and what its fundamental nature is. And you actually can't trace from the outside either what its origin or its fundamental nature is. I mean, you, 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 it's like you can do ever more refined neuroscience investigations of consciousness and there will remain the fact that any examination of the brain is as the brain as showing up as a perceptual object within the horizon of consciousness. Right. So you never step outside consciousness and track it right. down to something that's fundamentally not consciousness or that's outside of right. consciousness. So that's from the outside. From within, you know, you can go down the rabbit hole deep, 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 deep experientially, but you can never see the underlying generative source of that, despite mm. what one or another tradition might claim. At least that's my own view. When you hear like Sam Harris, right, say, the feeling of seeing no self as a truth. It's like seeing a snake and then you see it's a rope. It's just obvious to you that you can't go back now to thinking it's a snake, it's a rope. You basically say that that doesn't extend to the metaphysical claim about the nature of existence or the nature of the self. That's just a claim about how it feels. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, the snake rope analogy is one where you've got this kind of like horizon of your consciousness this vista that's sort of horizontally bounded of your consciousness. And you see something and you like jump back and, you know, think it's a snake, but then you realize it's a rope. And so you never respond 
to that thing in the same way again. You realize, oh, it's it's really a rope, and and it's also susceptible, given a certain mindset, to having superimposed on it a snake. Mm. That's the sort of evolution in your experience. But the idea that you could, on the basis of that kind of evolution, then claim that you have exhausted the depths of reality such that there could never be any further revision or alteration or openness. It still doesn't, at least as I see it, warrant the statement that you have plumbed the depths of reality because that's a perspective, if you will, from within. But that doesn't tell you anything about Mm. the Big Bang, the evolution of biological life, the nature of disease, viruses. I mean, there's just all sorts of things that that perspective just doesn't give you access to. Is it a mistake here between thinking that these things are going to solve metaphysical claims rather than satoriological ones again? I mean to say, like, we don't need to take on the metaphysical baggage in order to get well from those insights. You know, rather than saying, oh, well, I've had this experience, therefore all of reality must be consciousness. I mean, even in the tradition, was it ever meant to be a sort of metaphysical step? Most of the time when I'm reading Buddhism, I really hear the satoriological direction. It's not about trying to figure out what's real out in the world. Rather, it's about getting the arrows out of your heart in a way, right? That's supposed to be helping you overcome your suffering. I think in the modern context today, not everybody, but you do see this in the sort of, you know, spirituality without religion kind of milieu in which we live, you see, you know, many teachers who make statements about reality on the basis of, you could say, certain kinds of, you know, profound meditative insights that I just think don't follow from the experiential insights that they've, that they've had. So that's more what I was, what I was talking about. Yeah. And the fundamental bit there that's underlying your argument sounds like, look, you can have these experiential experiences but just the nature of the experience you're having doesn't give you any further information on the problem you're trying to solve which is metaphysical yeah i mean here's here's an example so everything in your experience whether you're awake and acutely perceiving whether you're mind wandering whether you're daydreaming whether you're falling asleep whether you're having a dream whether you're having a lucid dream whether you're having an out-of-body experience whether you're having a near-death experience like take the whole gamut none of that as experienced tells you anything about the fact that you have a brain and that things are happening in the brain when these experiences happen. You don't, you would never know that from the first person perspective, right? That's quite an unsexy answer though, right? Because the enlightenment- (laughs) Really? (laughs) Well, it's it's sexy in as far as the heady metaphysics are sexy. Okay, good. (laughs) It's unsexy in as far as if you're in the game, and I think lots of people are as a psychological resource. Yeah. And I'm speaking about myself in the past tense here. You look at something like Buddhism or enlightenment and go, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, sure. That thing over there sounds great. And in some ways, in order for you to buy the fact it would be so great, you need the metaphysics. Because without the metaphysics... Sure. I, I, I mean, it. I get that. Of course I get that. I've been, I've been there myself. So I totally, I totally understand that feeling. So some people aren't interested in the metaphysics at all, or they just, you know, like they're interested in it because it makes a tangible difference to their life. And the bigger metaphysical story is sort of like, well, you know, That's maybe not why I'm here. It's interesting, but that's not why I'm here. So that's fine. That's totally fine. If you get drawn into the bigger metaphysical story and you're trying to figure things out, then I think, you know, you kind of have to be honest and you have to like follow the argument where it leads. 
And yeah. that has its own kind of compelling aesthetics. So that's what yeah. I would say to somebody. I would say, look, you know, yeah. okay, you're going down that path, you know, then be rigorous about it. Commit yourself yeah. to it. And yeah. don't try to just, you know, shut it down and script it uh, prematurely. That feels like the remedy for loads of our ills today. The people should be taking philosophy, I think, sort of <laughs> pervasively, right? That right. you should learn to be critical thinkers, to think through your belief systems and to think where your beliefs came from and where did you take leaps of logic and were they good leaps and why did you take those leaps? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. No, the definitely. difficulty is, right, and like anyone who spent any time around practicing Buddhists or practicing meditators will know, everyone, I'm projecting a little bit, but goes in with a certain psychological outcome they have in mind. And... The step, you know, to go, I'm going to follow the logic here, really, and work out where I'm sort of making these leaps or whether, where does the experience not account for the metaphysics? I think people struggle with that because it doesn't seem to answer the problem that they're actually wanting solved, which is anxiety is tough or this emotional problem would be resolved if I got this imagined thing. So it's where it's so important to have this message come through in these groups to go, let's just be honest about the reasoning we're making here. Because without that message coming on top, it's very easy to make the leaps that you want to make emotionally. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I mean, the reasons people are often drawn into these things typically is, you know, not so much these larger metaphysical questions, but, you know, more immediate felt needs. And I don't want to, you know, deny the value and importance of that at all. But I do think that if you're thinking of it as a path of wisdom and a path of self-knowledge, then you're selling yourself short if you don't plumb the depths. I'm not arguing against the value of locating yourself within a tradition and committing yes. yourself to that yeah. tradition. Mm -hmm. I have no quarrel with that. I think that's fine. But I think it is important not to do that in a way that involves a kind of distorted understanding or, or, or false consciousness of what these larger questions, you know, entail. Evan, I appreciate you being here. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks very Thanks, much. Evan. Great. Evan, just before we let you go, where can everyone find you? So if you just Google Evan Thompson, my web pages will come up at University of British Columbia and then my own personal web page. If you're somebody who uses Twitter, I'm on Twitter. My emails are listed at the UBC site and my, and my personal site if someone wants to contact me that way. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for listening. And as always, we'll see you next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 